There is something about today's guest that makes me want to drop everything I'm doing and just create. It's quilting with intention. It's quilting for a living, but beyond the constraints of commerciality. It's building the conversation about quilting and how to interact with them and view them in our world. It's shining the light, literally, in his latest series on the seams of the creative process. From architecture to quilting, today I'll have a chat with Luke Haynes. Welcome to the Culture on Fire podcast, where I explore the stories, the connections, and the joy of guests in the quilting world. I am so excited to have our guest today. I've been following him for ages. I have interviewed a few of his friends who have just made me want to interview him even more. I'm your host, Brandy Mislowski, also known as the Culture on Fire, and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you. So here we go. My guest today is Luke Haynes. You have heard mentions of him in my past episodes with Zach. Heidi, and Joe the Quilter. I don't even have to say their last names anymore because if you've listened to those episodes, the stories they tell are now emblazoned on our hearts. But now I'll be chatting with Luke Haynes. He is known for an art practice in full view in the community, in the world. He puts his idea of comfort and utility through quilting into the public domain and starts conversations with every stitch and with every installation. He has quilts in the permanent collections of museums across the USA. He has been featured as innovative, influential, and a must-see in major press across the nation, and he has mounted dozens of solo exhibitions of quilts with a purpose. So let's explore the story of Luke Haynes. Luke, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. So let's start by taking a look back at where you got started. So when do you first remember putting stitch to fabric? I was in art school. I was in an arts conservatory for high school. And, you know, you live at the conservatory. So you end up with breaks from classes during holidays and whatnot. And I had these fabric squares that I had purchased or my mom had purchased at a yard sale. Uh, garage sale. And I thought, you know, gosh, I wonder if I can make a picture using fabric. So, you know, at art school, we're using charcoal, we're using, you know, paints, we're using, you know, Q-tips dipped in ink, you know, all of these different sort of mediums. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if I can make a picture using fabric. And so the first project that I ever went on was this seven foot by 10 foot quilt self-portrait that I was making during the this sort of break from arts classes at this conservatory. And how did they sort of react to that? Because, you know, I've heard stories of creators in the past who went to these big fancy art schools and it was kind of frowned upon to use fabric as, you know, the way to create your work. So interestingly enough, I never showed it to anybody at the school. They were just, you know, it just, it didn't dawn on me to bring it to uh, class, right? I was doing all of my schoolwork and additionally, I was making a quilt. And this one took me, honestly, probably took me longer than the school did to get it finished because it was all like, you know, what's I think three inch squares that were forming this, you know, massive seven foot by 10 foot quilt. So by the time I showed anybody, it was way past that <laughs> the year of, of conservatory. So it, it didn't come up. And then, I mean, even the next, oh my gosh, probably 15 quilts never left my studio. So it really wasn't for anyone else's opinion. It was more honing a skill set before I felt confident enough to share it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think that your upbringing led you to search out creative experiences in your life? So creative is maybe the wrong word in the sense that, you know, my upbringing was very solitary. My parents were young. They oopsed a child out, got divorced. We're both still in university for a lot of my my childhood. And so I spent a lot of time at daycares and babysitters and just at home by myself. And so it, it wasn't, you know, creativity certainly was a part of it, but it was more about this idea of of sort of self-care in the in the like real tradition, the real sense of the word. Like I wanted to feel confident that I could care for myself. Right. So, you know, I learned to cook early because I was in charge of feeding us dinner. And I learned to knit early on because in in sort of this direct conversation with self um uh, sort of confidence in terms of of taking care of you know so making craft items was more about uh, making sure that I was warm enough and that I was safe enough and that I was uh, able to kind of construct an environment to care for myself so it wasn't about sort of a cultivated creativity in in so much as like gosh I wonder if that would look good it was more about I'm going to make something that Whose, whose basis is in utility and function as a sort of way to make me feel like I was capable enough to care for myself, even though I was kind of left to my own devices in, in, a, in a way. Yeah. So instead of sort of using it as a way to have fun or a creative outlet, it was more like a self-preservation or self-care. Right. It was more to make me feel like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm safe if I'm able to do the things that I need to do to care for myself. Right? It was a, it was a safety thing. And I mean, emotionally, right? Obviously, you can't knit a scarf and then go on and sort of, you know, live in it and eat it. But it was a, a way as a, as a child to kind of feel like I was in control of my situation a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So your very first portrait quilt at 19 years old, how did your love for quilting blossom from there? You said you went on to create 15 more quilts. What was it about the fabric that just drew you in? Oh, certainly more than 15 by this point, (laughs) but 15 before I even showed anybody. Honestly, uh, interestingly enough, the story goes like this. Uh, It wasn't very good, right? (laughs) So so like I made one and if for some accident I had made it very successfully, I don't know that I would have ever made another quilt. You know, it would have just been like, ah, okay, quilts, I get it. I made one, but it wasn't particularly good. It didn't fit my bed. It wasn't you know, the size was weird, you know, the portrait on it, you could see, but wasn't particularly dynamic. And so I thought, gosh, I I bet I could do this a little bit better. And the other part of that too, in speaking to that sort of history of self-care and sort of self-comfort, you know, I made a quilt that wasn't very aesthetic, right? I'm in art school, you know, you, you sort of train your mind to look at things and talk about things. You're like, is it cool? Is it aesthetic? Is it conceptual? Is it, you know, composed right? And I didn't like it, but I had a quilt, right? So I was warmer, but I wasn't more of an artist in some senses. So I thought, okay, I've actually won in that I have made something, but I didn't win in that that thing isn't interesting. And so I got this really cool sort of, um, you know, push in one direction and pull in the other direction. So I wanted to make a better version of it because I loved that I made it, but I didn't love what I had made. So, you know, I continued to make quilts in sort of private in my own studio just to kind of hone a skill set to see if I could do it. Yeah. And I love the fact that you didn't like as a youth, see it as this a huge failure or anything. You saw it as, yeah, I learned that. Let's do something new. Right. So that's, that's kind of cool to be able to grasp that at that young age. So 
how did you grow and change with your style over time? Like you didn't take the sort of traditional route of going to quilt shops and joining guilds and making traditional quilts. What do you think you were exploring then? And what do you think, how has it led to where you are now? Well, <clears throat> so two things shaped that early exploration. One, I wasn't coming from a pedagogy of quilting that is traditional in the sense that a lot of people learn quilting from a family member or I mean, honestly, that's the biggest, right? The pedagogy of like of like oral tradition of quilting or family tradition. You know, it could be an aunt, could be grandma, could be mom, could be, you know, sibling, could be something like that. Often mostly women, and there's a big reason for that, et cetera, which we can talk about, but uh, a lot of people know. And so I, I, you know, there was quilting in my family, but it wasn't taught to me from my family. And so I'm coming from art school. I'm coming from design. I'm coming from, you know, studying the MoMA. I'm studying, you know, th these kind of like, museum works but i'm using quilting as a medium and so one i wasn't introduced to quilting as a culture i was introduced to quilting as a medium and two when i started i'm a boy i'm a male i'm a guy i wasn't invited necessarily into the inner sanctum of quilting and it wasn't a rude thing always it was more just a I don't fit, right? It, you know, quilting communities, quilting circles, quilting guilds, quilting bees were a place for women to feel comfortable in a community. And so, you know, a 19-year-old, 21, 25, whatever year old guy going into the quilt shop, first of all, I wasn't treated as I was the buyer. I, they were looking behind me for my wife. And second of all, it didn't cross their mind to then introduce me to what they were doing later. Come to my guild, come to this thing. And I did go to a couple and just sort of sat in the back and, you know, they didn't know what to do with me and I didn't know what to do with them because there's so much uh, tradition in quilting and they were presenting that tradition and I had no entry point in tradition. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't have an entry point into throw it on the wall and see if it works, uh, you know, like art school style. And so we just, you know, our Venn diagram at that point as a subculture of quilting and as a me as a quilter were two disparate circles. It took a while for those to overlap. Uh, it took me a lot of years of exhibiting and learning to recognize a lot of the values in quilting as a subculture because I wasn't I wasn't invited, but I wasn't sort of pushed away either. I didn't have to sort of fight my way in, but I also wasn't encouraged. So it was this kind of like mutual respect that didn't overlap in a lot of ways. So, you know, that's certainly changed over time when quilters have asked me to come and speak or invited me to be part of guilds and, you know, present in different ways in major festivals, et cetera. And then I started to learn the beauty and value and culture that's that's sort of rich within quilting and quilt history. And that has definitely influenced my work because it is important for me to honor the quilters who came before me. So, you know, I certainly try in as many ways as I can to say what I'm making is quilts. I'm not trying to unquilt. I'm trying to actively quilt, right? I'm using quilt patterns behind some portraits to sort of say, you know, I want to prove that there is a history and a medium and a, and a valuable culture here that I am not trying to subvert. I'm not trying to be better than, I'm not trying to dissolve that I, I'm learning from and a part of. Yeah, yeah. I love the conversations that you all have on Softbook about appreciating and growing and making new. And it's such great conversations. So speaking of all the things you've learned in the past, in school, in art, Let's talk a little bit about architecture. So tell us how you made a transition from another career before quilting. 
So, I mean, interestingly enough, my my glib answer always is how do you how do you make the transition from architecture to quilting? And my answer is always they're not different. So, and, and sort of to explain that, uh, architecture is a manipulation of materials using historical sort of methodology to engage the human form in a sort of comfort safety realm, you know, kind of a, a way to create a shelter, right? And quilting is exactly the same, you know, using layering, using geometry, using kind of historical methods and material, we create a kind of safety environment, right? A blanket versus a house obviously have a great deal of differences, but they're about manipulating materials in an aesthetic way to serve a very particular function. And so a lot of the ways of thinking about them overlap a great deal. And so the transition is not necessarily in the way of thinking, it's the material type and by and large, the the way to make money from it and the job of it is the big difference, right? Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. So was there kind of a defining moment when you thought, okay, I've invested in this education, I have this career, but this is my thing. Cool thing is my thing. I can do this for a living. Was there like a moment when you were just like, yeah, I can't do both anymore? I mean, certainly the moment that comes to mind was you you sort of there's a lot of schooling involved in architecture there's a lot of schooling and there's a lot of interning it's you know it's akin to being a doctor in the sense that there's an amount of schooling and there's an amount of internship that you have to do before you can even take an exam after which you can start your career by uh you know building walmart parking lots which is which is just the way of a lot of careers and and i hit this moment where i was in school again right so more school more school and the school that i was attending for the the second part of the program, the second part of architecture to get my full degree, had told me they would take all of my classes that I would, you know, whatever. And then they changed their mind part of the way through the through the year. And so they basically added two more years of school on to my school, which already was long. And, you know, recognizing that the you know, at that point, recognizing the amount of money that it would cost me to get to the point where I would be able to work in this profession, I recognized that I would then be beholden to the profession, right? I would I would be required to do it because I had decided that it might be interesting to do. And that felt so trapping. It felt so containing because, you know, at the point where I, if I wanted to do the thing I was studying I would have to do the thing I was studying. You know, it's kind of like in order to go on a third date, you had to marry the person. Uh, (laughs) Like that was just way too much. And sort of recognizing that the industry is such that I could pay an architect to build architecture. I still love architecture. I love it. It's one of my biggest design inspirations. One of the things I love to research and learn about. But if I want to develop architecture, I can hire an architect of record and still be able to produce the work. It's And so, you know, I decided, okay, at the end of each day, what do I want to do? Do I want to build a skill set? And do I want to develop something that I can create myself? Or do I want to sort of indenture myself to a career that is a very... It, it's not guaranteed that you have a job in architecture, right? The, the rule there is every seven years, 40% of the industry is laid off. Wow. And that's just the nature of it, whatever. But I was like, okay, that sounds frustrating. And, you know, it's not particularly fiscally lucrative. So if I'm just going to get a job, I can go be a banker or something. So anyway, I decided I'll go, I'll go be a quilter and make all my money there. And, <laughs> you know, there you go. 
Okay, so before we get into the topic of design, which I'm so excited to explore with you, where are you living now and who are your loved ones that you share your world with every day? So I'm living in Los Angeles, California, sunny Los Angeles, and I have my wife, Nicole, and my very large wolfhound, Honeydew. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm excited to talk about design because everything you do, I just feel like it comes from a place, a conversation that you want to have with the world. You're using your quilt to create a conversation with people. You're bringing your story to the world through quilts. So when you see something in the world that sparks an idea, how do you capture that to save for a future project? It's a good question. I have notes on my phone. I have photos that I have in different folders on my phone. I have folders all over my computer, some of which I can't find. It's very, you know, in a lot of ways, I never thought about this analogy, but the closest would be, you know, how squirrels <laughs> bury nuts for the winter and yeah. they don't know where about 80% of them are when they get hungry. You know, it's like this whole thing where squirrels plant nuts everywhere and then they find some of them when they're hungry. It feels similarly there. So I find something that I'm inspired by and I write a note or a sticky note or in a journal or on my phone. Uh, and then sometime later, maybe I find it yeah. <laughs> or the idea will spark something in concert with other things that I find. And so it kind of uh, ends up being some aggregate idea of, of a lot of different inspiration where, where kind of they, they manifest in a, in a project. So when you've, you know, done the brainstorming, kind of settled on an idea, you're embarking on a project, do you put pencil to paper and do more research there? Do you research a theme or do you dive into materials and see where they take you? Tell us about that part of the process. I mean, the answer is yes and yes and yes. So really each series that I do is intentional to have a conversation. That's my goal, right? I mean, you know, I'm not always successful, but my goal being to, to create a series of work, a body of work that has built within it some narrative that is helping me to explain uh, my history, history of quilting, conce concept of craft, concept of art, concept of architecture, concept of environment, right? And so it really depends on what the narrative implicit to the series is, whether it's about materiality, whether it's about visual narrative, whether it's about scale. And so depending on what the project sort of thesis is, I will absolutely do more uh, research on that. And by research, I sometimes mean I'll make four quilts and look at them and see what's right. Or, you know, I will go get a, done, a bunch of different material and dye it and cut it and whatever, and then find out what works. Or even if it's just researching famous American portrait painters so that I can understand sort of uh, postures that I can bring to bear in this medium. So, you know, the research really depends on the narrative that's important to the body of work. Yeah, so fascinating. Now, and I want to talk a little bit about color with you because I was listening to that latest episode of Soft Book and you were talking about the 10 by 10 by 10 project and how you gathered sheets, almost a thousand sheets. And the one thing you said about color was I was just trying to choose not white. And I, you know, I was taking, you, you were taking prints. And so how do you decide on color? Like you, it's not a traditional kind of, I'm using the color wheel and I'm choosing from a designer's palette of fabrics on the shelf at a quilt shop. So let's talk a little bit about how you work with color. It's a great question. And that particular series is, <laughs> it's funny because 
I didn't choose color. I created a method, right? So it, for that particular series and, and a lot of the works I've been making in the last year, year and a half, the palette is what is available at Goodwill that day in the sheets. And so I am not choosing color at all. I'm creating a system whereby I find the fabric that has been discarded by a community, you know, a community of, of people with beds. And so the color palette is actually a design experiment for the language of linens of a community as they've been discarded. And I think that's beautiful because I create a system and I don't even know exactly what the visual aesthetic will be as I put it together, right? Because I'm not choosing color, I'm choosing a system. Yeah, language of linens, that's really rich. And I I think that leads me right into my next question of what do you think it is with your art and your installations that really resonates with the viewer? <laughs> I mean, you can't ask me, right? I mean, I, I'm the maker, not the viewer, right? Like that's the uh, I, I'm that's the one question I don't ever get to answer. I mean, I I always have an intentionality, right? It's always purposeful. I I, I am a maker. You know, my my language that I like to say is I'm a designer working with quilts, and the difference in that language is you know an artist makes things they like, and a designer makes things that are in conversation with an audience. And so designer for me feels more resonant because it is very important to have a conversation. But, you know, I have an intention of what I'm trying to get people to think or say or like, but I, I, I can't tell you because it's like, that's the one piece that is, is so important from somebody else. Yeah. I mean, and I can tell you when you <laughs> said language of linens, it makes so much sense because not only are you bringing, you're putting your creative process in on it, you're taking bits of the community putting it back together and putting it on display. And people already have this inherent, oh, they're drawn to fabric because it's our clothing, it's our blankets, it's our bedding. And when you put it on a wall or in an installation, I just, I have this feeling personally, when I walk around these things, just like, ah, this is comfort to another level. So that's my answer as the viewer, but I mean, I've never seen them in person and I can't wait to one day. I'm just going to have to come over to your yard the next time you do an installation. But okay. So I want to know how your wife is uh, involved in your art practice and what that means to you. Well, I mean, outside of being the greatest support in the world, she's wonderful. We've done a couple of well, we're working on a collaborative project that has been a couple years in the running as well. It's called uh, Affirmation Quilt. So she is a maker of affirmation work. She works in kind of the public domain, a lot of the advertising sphere. And so we've been doing these projects of affirmation quilts where I will make a quilt or a series of quilts and she will add words on them and then we will put them up publicly. So we will leave them somewhere with no names on them, with a note on the back that says, if you find it, you can keep it. It's made with love and it's machine washable. And so we've been putting these words of affirmation into the world on top of quilt objects uh, for a while now. I'm not sure exactly how many of them, but we've, you know, we're, we're trying, hopefully in the next year, we will have touched every state in the United States, which will be great. Um, wow. So I didn't even realize, I didn't even know about that element of it, that it's gone. Yeah. Like it's given away. I didn't realize that part of it. I, I'm looking at quilts on your website or, or, you know, on Instagram and, and I'm seeing these amazing words, like you are here. It is beautiful. Thank you. Like, I love those kind of affirmations, but I didn't realize that someone gets to take that away and you are not going to be seeing it ever again. 
ever again. And our names aren't on them. So that's, I mean, partially, so that's a lot of Nicole's work. My wife's work is about uh, presenting these affirmations to the world. And one thing that she says a lot and that I fully believe in is if an affirmation comes with some kind of a cost, it may not be heard as well. So for example, uh, you see a lot of affirmation advertising, but then they're trying to sell you a t-shirt. And so, you know, you, a viewer may not take a affirmative statement to heart if you are supposed to pay for it, right? If it's like, you're doing a great job today, come and buy our CBD oil. Then you're like, well, maybe I'm not doing a great job. Maybe you're just trying to sell me something. And so, you know, one of the big things that we do is there is no cost associated with these. Literally, they are free. They are in the world. Our name is not on them anywhere. It just says you can take it if you need it. And anybody who comes across it and maybe doesn't want to take it still is able to take the message without feeling like they have to go to a website or they have to scan a QR code or have to do any action. It gets to be just a dialogue between the words and the viewer. And that becomes very important. Yeah, so great. That kind of anonymity really, ha- it, it leaves the viewer with a very powerful feeling, right? I love that. Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the business of quilting. It's it's an art practice for you, but you're also making a living. So how do you actually make a living as an art quilter? <laughs> so there's a long, there's, I mean, there's a lot of parts there. You know, I, I think that sort of each individual person who has asked me about that in terms of help for them or or advice for them, that conversation has gone differently every time. Yeah. So to, to sort of make a blanket advice doesn't work, no pun intended. But how it works for me is I make commissions. Uh, so people will contact me and say, make a portrait of my family or uh, make an affirmation quilt for me to give to my child or um, make a project that's going to live on in my family, whether it be useful or wall art, whether it be massive or small. There's a, a lot of people who contact me and want me to make something for them. So that's a you know a bunch of the, the the sort of income. I also work with galleries and museums all over the world, which sell the object or acquire the objects, and and that is also another income stream. I teach a lot, but that's more for me about giving back to the community, right? So teaching is not a a, a zero cost, but the income from it is not enough to support me. It's not enough to pay all the bills that I need to just, you know, get fabric and have the lights on and, you know, go to Krispy Kreme sometimes. It is more a way for me to give back to a community of quilters. And I love doing it. I love teaching. And I've been able to travel the world for quilting and teaching. It's wonderful. Touring Japan, touring Europe, touring Australia, New Zealand, right? Africa, all these places. It's, it's, and it's wonderful. But from a business perspective, I think it's, it's, worth saying for anybody who's interested in sort of transitioning from an income standpoint, it is very difficult to make enough money. Uh, quilters don't buy quilts. Yeah. And that is not a, a a critique. It is just the way the world of, of quilting works, right? If you, if you go to a symposium of painters, they are not going to buy your painting. They want to learn the materials you use and how you wrangle your paints. And quilting is the same. And so the way that quilters support is by buying patterns and books and fabric and none of which I have. (laughs) None of which I have because, you know, I always find it so troubling trying to do a hard sell to a community of people who I respect so much. 
I mean, I think that is a really great conversation. And someone listening right now might be thinking, wow, he's had all of these solo shows and it's so incredible and he must be wealthy and, you know, this kind of stuff. But really, it's the hours you put into the quilts. It's the hours you put into creating, setting up an installation. It's the work you put out there that you're not getting paid for unless one of them sells or unless it's acquired, you might make a bit of an income, but you don't actually get paid for mounting a show, do you? You get paid if something sells. Yeah. Museums don't pay you. Galleries do not pay you. Galleries jobs are to sell your work. And take a percentage of it as well, right? Galleries take 50%, which not everybody knows. This sort of income strategy is is varied and different. That's why commissions are wonderful. If someone reaches out to me and says, I want to own one of your pieces, whether it's an existing one or whether it's a future one that we get to design together. That's a wonderful way that there's no middle person who takes a big cut. And I get to make something that is perfect for the, the future owner. And I think that's so wonderful and honoring and, and sort of special in some really lovely ways. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of your first experiences. So do you remember what was your very first fine art quilt on display in the world? Ooh. So, I mean, I shy away from categorizing it as fine art in the sense that I think that there's a lot of language in quilting that is coming up in the last several decades, art quilt, uh, fine art quilt, art quilter, um, that is necessary to denote that the object's intention is viewing, not picnics. (laughs) But I think that in some ways, by specifying, you are then categorizing the rest of it as not that. And I think that that is a, a somewhat fraught piece of piece of language in the sense that, you know, calling my quilts art quilts, I am then unarting every other quilt that is not signified as art quilts. And I'm not at all suggesting that people should not use that nomenclature. It is important because it allows the maker to signify to the viewer, user, buyer, what their intentionality is. But it's, that's not my way. I don't call them art quilts. I make quilts. Yeah. Hard stop. Those quilts are shown in art environments. Those quilts are purchased by art collections. Those per- those quilts have uh, a visual compositional aesthetic with the intention of viewing, looking as art does. But I just want to say that I think that that sort of signifying art as its qualifier in some way makes it feel like I am no longer a part of just general quilts. And, and you know, for better or worse, I, you know, I, I try not to do that just because I, I think that it is important in some ways to still be a part of the world of quilt making. It's fascinating to me because I think I'm coming from a perspective of like the Studio Art Quilt Associates and some of the organizations I'm involved in where we've had this struggle for years and years to tell the world that quilts are art. And we're taking that and putting it into all the other fine art. And we're getting the conversation going about, yes, the grandmother's, great grandmother's historical quilts that they made those many years ago with their fingers. Those are art as well. And so I'm coming it from a perspective of let's include it all. And you're coming from a, a perspective, let's make sure we don't leave anyone out. And it's a great conversation to have because they're both fully, fully valid ways of thinking about it. I love it. I also think, you know, we could talk for many hours on art as concept and art as sort of the definition there and the language there, um, because I have some very strong opinions. But uh, one of them being that I think that art is 
really truly a a it's like the the artist and the maker doesn't get to art their own work <laughs> like i can call it art but that may or may not be true really depending on how it is received and what people think about it for example on the other side of that you think about the g's bins quilts like in the vernacular of quilting the g's bins quilts are beautiful objects that were never initially designed to be aesthetic for production or for external value. They were always designed to be aesthetic, right? They wanted to make a cool thing and that's wonderful. But then they went to uh, the wall or they were used to cover the wood pile or they were 15 on a bed to keep them warm. It was a abject poverty destitute community that was using the fabric that they had to make functional items that they didn't present to the world in these austere white boxes as expensive value art objects. They were using aesthetic born of their own community to make pure functional items. And then the world came in later and arted them. They were discovered and they had art thrust upon them and they were toured the world, the Whitney, all over the world, these beautiful art quilts, art, 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 you know, they're quilts, but they weren't made by somebody who put the word art on them. They were arted later. And I think that that's really interesting. And there's a lot of conversation there. And I'm not by any means, again, just to say, I don't think that people should not use the signifier art quilt because it is a very clean way of telling somebody what, how to look at your work. But I do think that that the viewer's job is to decide if they agree or not. And and that is exclusive to whether you call it art or not, <laughs> right? The G's bin quilts, we're not called art, but we'll art them all day. And there's plenty of people who call their work art and maybe you disagree. And I think it's it's on the viewer, user, buyer, engager to, to, to sort of make that designation in a way that I don't think the, the maker has the full right to do. Absolutely. Now, Luke, you make quilts with a process that has historically only been identified with grandmas and crafts. And this is what we're having a conversation about. So how are you holding an appreciation for the past while creating innovative works and forging your own way? I mean, as best I can. I mean, you know, so Part of it is methodological. I might have made that word up. So, you know, making a quilt in a way that quilts have been made, right? So I am putting pieces together with corners that match and I am sewing fabric together until it's big enough that I can quilt it, right? So there's a lot of the history in the method. There is history in the material itself. Um, And in so much, just making a quilt has so much implicit history and narrative and nostalgia to it that I couldn't not, right? I think it would be really difficult to try to make quilt that is divorced from grandma's crafts, history, nostalgia, privacy, materiality, if I didn't make it out of something else and use a different word, right? At the, you know, at the, And at that point, it would no longer kind of be the quilt that it started out. So, so I think that I can't not make quilts that reference the, the history from whence it came. So when we think about it that way, why are you doing all this? Like, what is, like, you may not have a mission and a vision and a purely defined goal, but what keeps you going? Why are you doing this? I mean, it's a great question. Like, what is the, <laughs> What's what, the point? <laughs> why in the world are, you know, why in the world are you a quilter? Like, why not go, you know, 
be a painter or a banker. I think it's still stemming from the initial value I got out of making a bad quilt. So I have put something into the world that is beautiful, functional, and utility, but it kind of wasn't pretty. And I and I have constantly been been sort of addressing that in my work forever. And every time I make an exhibition, there are still more narratives to present, right? So, you know, quilts are sculpture. I've been working on a lot of quilts as sculpture narratives for years because I don't think quilts are paintings. I think quilts are sculpture, but they are often presented like paintings. And I think that undervalues the tactility and the utility implicit in the object. And that's why I really liked the term soft bulk and why we used it for the the name for our conversation for those years is because it calls to mind the heft of, of a quilt existing in the world as a sculpture object. And so for me, why I still make them is because I have yet to resolve all of the stories and I have yet to convince everyone in the world that they are valuable. And I think that there's still so many quilts to be made that have yet to be made. And, you know, until until they're made, I'm I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And what I'm what I'm kind of getting from that is that it's it's all about community for you. Like it's all about getting that message to a greater community. And I mean, if you look at the affirmation quilts, like how many have you done of the affirmation quilts? I'm not sure. Probably 20 something of them. Yeah. So So that's huge. And tell us about how you're getting yourself involved in community. Like tell us about your Patreon. What are you doing there? So, I mean, community is just so big, right? So I call myself a designer, not an artist. And the, again, the distinction there is that it is very important, imperative, in fact, that I have a dialogue and not just an output. And so I have a Patreon, which is really just a way for me to get people to send art to every month. And then I have a Slack, which will I maybe soon migrate to another platform, but it doesn't matter. It's a conversation. So everybody on my Patreon has access to me and access to each other. And we could talk about anything that's important, whether it's binding, whether it's color choice, whether it's why a quilt exists and how big it should be, or whether it's good, whether it's bad, you know, there's, there's, access to dialogue in a way that I think is just so important as a community. And so, you know, Patreon for me is a way to get people together to have these conversations. It costs a little money. That goes to me. That's helpful. But it is by no means a big income generator. It is a way to support the time that I can then take to answer all these questions and cultivate this community within this group. And also I send everyone on it a piece of art every month. And I think that's a really fun way for me to have an excuse to innovate and create new objects every single month. Yeah. So let's talk about other ways that you get your information out to the world. Do you have a newsletter? I do. I have a newsletter. Okay. And how often does that go up? <laughs> I'm only laughing because, you know, it's like it's not my greatest skill set. I, <laughs> I, I've sort of given myself a task to do it weekly about six months ago, and I've probably done four since then. So it's probably about every month I send it out, but it's more about, you know, announcing shows where I'm doing them wherever in the world so that folks can get a sense of whether they can come down. Cause I love it when people come to the show and, you know, talk about classes. I've been doing online classes for a couple of years that are, most of them are free now because I want community. I want people to show up. I want them to learn about quilting. I want to present the information that I have gleaned over a, a lifetime of making quilts so that other people can make them. Yeah. And so anyway, that's that's what the newsletter is for. It's more of a, a sort of fun way to share shows and what's coming on. 
Okay, so tell us what your website is and what kind of things we can find there. Website is loop.art. Easy as pie. And what kind of things are we going to find there? Like, we're going to find your art, aren't we? I mean, well, I guess your quilts, right? So we're going to find you know, those. So, I mean, look, if you want to call it art, I'm not going to be mad <laughs> about it. I would love that, right? It is my intention for it to be art, but I'm not trying to <laughs> put words in your mouth. So if you go to my website, I have uh, images of the work that I've made, exhibit- exhibitions throughout the years. There's information on classes. There's information on commissions. There's information on the works that I've made. There's information on, you know, certain press stuff. I mean, there's, you know, my CV on there if you want to look at past exhibitions and just kind of like a a good overview of uh, myself and so artist statement and talking about my history as well as like images of the works that I've made. Yeah. So many beautiful images there. I really encourage you to go check it out. So that's loop.art. There is no .com. It's just loop.art. You'll find it there. Yeah. Um, easy, easy, easy. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about collaborations because collaborations play a huge part in your creative process. You've done a number of them. So first of all, you've done soft bulk. We've touched on that. That is a collaboration where you're having great conversations and it's easily accessible on Heidi Park's YouTube channel. But let's talk about the one, because I've interviewed him in the past as well and we talked about it. Let's talk about the one you did with Joe Cunningham. I've talked with him on my podcast about the quilt called My Own Mountain. And what made you give him a pile of log cabin misfits? Well, I made 50 log cabin quilts and I had extra blocks. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with the blocks. So I sent them to Joe. What And wonderful thing about Joe, uh, among many wonderful things, obviously, is that he and I have the opposite working method. I design ahead of time and then I try to make the quilt match my intention or my aesthetic. And he starts with material and then the way he says it, he tries to fix it. He'll cut it and cut it a half or cut it in some way and then try to fix it. And so, you know, he works in a very material driven sort of intuitive way. And I work in a very intentional directed sort of product driven way. And so it's really fun to do collaborations with him because I get to learn how to think differently. And the collaborations for me are kind of my continuing ed of, of, of this job that I have. Right. So I can find a maker and do part of something and send it to them and then they'll finish it. And that is a really wonderful way for me to see how another brain works because I I know how I would finish it and then it's different. And so I'm able to compare my brain with their brain in a physical object. And that's very interesting and edifying. And, And likewise, we have then created an object that is born of two minds. And so the object itself exist physically in the world is this sculptural object that is born of two different makers. And I think that that's wonderful. And I think it's very visually evocative for a viewership, but also very interesting for both makers as a a growing and learning experience. Yeah. And it's kind of cool that I get to see both sides of the story so clearly, because I've asked you both clearly the same question. And I could actually say that there's a third person involved because when I asked Joe that question, I mean, to describe this to the view, to the listener right now, it is a log cabin quilt that's kind of unconventional with the log cabins all sort of assembled in the bottom right corner. It looks kind of like a mountain, like Joe's little mountain, right? And so his wife apparently said to him, this quilt needs a climber on it. And then he (laughs) sent it back to you. So how did you decide where to put the climber and how big to make it because you didn't just put the climber on the bottom right corner on that kind of mountain of log cabins you 
you turned it around and you made him like rappelling off a cliff. It was really cool. Yeah. You know, I think putting a figure on a quilt gives an entry point to an entire new audience. If you make a quilt with a lot of pieces in a very traditional way, the people who understand that are other people who have made quilts in a very traditional way. And, you know, all wonderful. But I think that that sort of general audiences have a lot more access to images on art objects that are portraits or figural, right? I mean, you, you know, you, you come through middle school and you know about Christina's world and, you know, American Gothic and the Mona Lisa, they're, they're, they're pictures of people. And so if we put a big picture of people on top of a quilt, it artifies it in the object sense of it. It gives people an entry point to say, oh, there's a picture on that blanket. What does that mean? And so, you know, the scale of the, the narrative object on it, I think is important. And it gives a, a full different audience an entry point into it that wouldn't necessarily have it outside of a history of either making, owning, collecting, or appreciating quilts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It stretches them outside the common comfort of a quilt and makes them, you know, makes them tell a different story about what they're looking at in their yeah. own mind. Okay, so I want to talk about a Canadian favorite of mine and someone who I now consider a friend, Libs Elliott. I just met her in Houston in person for the first time after having interviewed her on the podcast. So it was so nice to get to know her. But what did you do with her? Ah, Libs is wonderful. First of all, I just have to say she's awesome. She, you know, she's she's such a she's such a funny combination of quiet and loud. She she holds down both sides of the spectrum, nowhere in the middle. She's very quiet and sort of wonderfully loving and kind and sort of presents, you know, in a very sort of quiet way when you're when you're with her and it's very lovely and calming and, and enjoyable. But her work is so loud and, you know, she's got a lot of tattoos and she presents in a very loud way and the work that she makes is so um, accessible and wonderful and rock and roll. And so it's this really cool dichotomy to, to, to witness. She and I have made a set of collaborations before. And I'm glad she hasn't unfriended me because we we started in a way, uh, I told her, I said, okay, make a quilt that's, I forget what size it is, probably 65 inches by 65 inches. I'm going to make a quilt that's 65 by 65. We're going to make a top, two quilt tops. And then we're going to find a third person who can combine the two into a bigger quilt. And that'll be a wonderful three-part collaboration. She made a quilt top. I made a quilt top. I decided I liked mine too much to cut up. And so I quilted it. And then I had hers quilted by this amazing quilter in Bronxville, just north of New York, Rachel Dorr, who just knocked it out of the park, quilted her quilt. Well, Rachel and Libs hate their quilt. They hate it with a fiery passion. So the quilt is called Burn It With Fire. <laughs> Both of them think it is an atrocious object. And they, they have thankfully not unfriended me on either social media or in real life because I, I, I sort of brought this thing into the world. They thought it was going to be cut up but I never did it. But, uh, you know, so Libs and I both started with two yards of the same fabric and then we made our quilt tops and we're going to sort of combine the two, which never happened. And that's entirely on me. Sorry, Libs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, she's just such a, such a grand maker and, you know, her making style is different than a lot of others. She does, she incorporates technology in a wonderful way. She has some, some programs that she uses that generate a quilt top design through a series of prompts and so she ends up with a quilt top that is, you know, AI is big in the news right now. So we'll say AI, it's AI generated and in the sense that she doesn't know what it's going to be. And so it's a collaboration with the computer and then she makes it. And so it's this wonderful sort of analog 
dialogue with you know a computer program and so that's all really interesting yeah and the innovation there when i interviewed her she started doing that long before anyone really had a notion of what ai even was and so that's so fascinating so tell me a little bit about collaboration you've done with heidi parks have you done one or a few We've done one together. <clears throat> it was similar to the one where I did with Libs, except I knew better about how I work, so I wasn't going to make a full quilt top. Heidi and I, <clears throat> I sent we we sent a little bit of a fabric to each other, and then we made half of a quilt, and then uh, I quilted it, and then sent it to her, and she finished the quilting. So it's it's a um, a quilt that has some of my fabric on her side, some of her fabric on my side, and then we both quilted over both sides. So it's an object where we kind of. Um, touched all the parts of it and it sort of made an interesting dialogue between her methods and my methods both in terms of piecing and in terms of quilting yeah and if you're scrolling through luke's website at luke.art you'll notice it right away because it's half red with some oranges and half blue it's kind of like a split quilt right yes it's gorgeous okay and i i can't go on without talking about your collaboration with rachel door because it was this amazing wedding ring quilt so tell us about that she's now for since you mentioned her to me in the past she is now firmly on my dream guest list for the podcast so tell me about the wedding ring quilt oh my goodness rachel's been such a dear friend for years i mean anytime that i can get her to work with me i will because she is one of the more meticulous intentional quilters that i have ever met and i will never aspire to have a skill set like she has because there is a attention to detail and attention span that I have no interest in cultivating. (laughs) And so it's wonderful to have a good friend who's so darn good at doing that thing. Her quilting is amazing. I mean, you, you can't get close enough. You just can't get close enough to see it, right? And and so it's wonderful to be able to work with her. And so the the collaboration there is a splashy quilt that I've made in the sense. And then she does the the intricate sort of quilting, the sort of subtlety to it. And so there's these beautiful moments that are from far away and from close up. That double wedding ring, she cussed me the entire time mm-hmm. uh, she was quilting it because I use red thread to piece it. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, it is an all-white oh, double them. wedding ring with some indigo splotches in it. So <laughs> kind of mixes so of these little blue patches that are that are like scattered amongst it. And then and sort of big areas of white. And she quilted it, all this work. But I pieced it in red thread because I wanted the, the seams to show up visibly. And she used a great deal of strong language about that <laughs> choice of mine. Because she she quilted it in the color of each piece. So if it's a white area, she quilted it as white. If it's blue, she quilted it in blue. So her quilting is this sort of like a subtle, demure, kind of beautiful texture and something to like come up and and really sort of unpack over the t- over time, looking at it sort of intimately. And then it'll be a bunch of red thread behind there, you know, just kind of haphazardly pieced together. Yeah, I can see that. So collaboration has played a huge part in your creative process. So it's been nice to see those. So if you're listening right now, make sure you go to the website. There's a whole area where you can find the collaborations. Now, I want to touch on some of the ways you've been featured in the press. You've had some, you know, is there one that has been, you know, really exciting for you, a memorable one? Gosh, exciting and memorable. I mean, look, I'm always excited when someone's excited about my work, right? Because that means that I am I am honoring my job as a designer. That means I have an audience. That means somebody who has some access to another audience is willing to 
put me on their platform. And that's just such an honor for me. That means I'm doing my job right to some level. So I've, I, you know, there's, there's never a point where I'm, I'm not excited about it. Um, there's fun things where I've been in like foreign magazines is always novel uh, if I can't read it. Right. So I've been in a magazine in Japan. I've been in a Malaysian magazine. I've been in, you know, certainly some in the UK, which I can read, which is cool, but in, you know, France and, and, and some of these other countries where I can't even read the articles. That's always really novel. It makes me feel sort of bigger bigger than myself in the sense that there's a whole other culture that has access to my work in a way that I don't even know what they're saying. And I hope it's good. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's touch on your latest big feature then in Quilting Arts magazine. Yeah. Um, So they reached out to you. What did you have in that magazine? Oh, that was uh, such a good spread. I mean, you know, you know, it's so (laughs) I'll have to out myself a little bit, which is I don't read my articles or listen to anything that I have to hear my own voice just because I do my best to put the best foot forward. And then I don't ever check just in case they get it wrong, because I, <laughs> I'll i have to trust them to do their job if they've trusted me to do my job. And I don't ever want to go behind and, you know, find out that it needs to be shifted. I mean, they always send me a, a review copy or whatever to make sure that it's that yeah. it goes well. But you know, it was, it was a big honor to be asked and they did a big spread. And so they were able to put in and include a lot of different projects and stories and narratives in there. And I was able to tell a bit more of my story on sort of a human level than I have in the past. Thus far, most of my press has been just like, I made this thing and here it is and here is why. But that article allowed me to kind of tell a little bit more of my own sort of narrative as a human, as a as an experience, as like a you know like where it came from, kind of some of the stuff I talked about early in this episode, like my my history of of my family, etc. And that was a really great platform to be able to share something a bit more intimate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you're listening right now, that is the latest issue of Quilting Arts Magazine, which is on store shelves right now. So you can find that at any local shop where they sell quilting and art magazines. So I want to chat before we go to the break, I want to chat a little bit about some of your, you know, memorable travel. What's been your favorite event or venue that you've attended in your quilting career? Wow, favorite is so hard. I mean, I got to tour Japan for a month and that was incredible. I've got to go. There's a, a exhibition in Saint-Marie-Almy in the center of sort of Eastern France yeah. um, every year. And so that's, I've been able to go to that one twice. And, you know, you stay in these like, I remember, you stay in these like medieval hotels where there's a bell that rings every 15 minutes for all of time. And it takes you three days to get used to a bell ringing all night long. Uh, and by the time you leave, you sort of miss it. It's become sort of a backdrop of of this experience and sort of these, you know, mystical, beautiful French kind of wonderful villages. And, you know, people from all over the, the country and the world come and look at quilts and talk about quilts and exhibit there. And, you know, I got to tour New Zealand, which was cool. And I got to go pet some sheep and drink some wine. And, you know, it's just been picking a favorite is so hard because, you know, then then all of a sudden it sort of gives a hierarchy. You know, if you pick a favorite, then the next time you travel, you have to say, is it better or worse than my favorite? And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, it's just so wonderful and new. It's so hard to do that. It's like, it's like on my deathbed, ask me what my favorite was. And that's the only time that I'll be able to really make it, you know, I don't know. I haven't tried them all yet. So 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about your teaching and speaking, because I have listened to one of your lectures on Zoom, and I loved it. It was a fantastic lecture. So if people are listening right now, and they want to hire you, what kind of lectures do you do? Is it sort of like a trunk show? I do. I mean, it obviously depends if it's over Zoom or in person. If it's in person, I can literally bring a trunk. If it's over Zoom, then, you know, there's less physical trunks involved. But I do several lectures. One is just a a great overview of the work that I've made. I've made well over 300 quilts in my career, and they've been all over the world in all of these different interesting iterations from, you know, 30 feet tall to, you know, 80 quilts in an exhibit to all of these different things. And it's really fun to be able to share a lot of that with the guild. But I also do a couple, if a guild wants to be more traditional, then we can talk about sort of how things are made and why they're made and different ways of thinking about sort of the construction method of quilts, if the guild wants to be a little bit more, I don't know, you know, constructivist in terms of the the lecture. And then, you know, I just really like talking about the work that I make because it's what I do. It's my job is talking about the work. And so I have an opportunity to share a longer story about particular quilts and, and you know, being able to show images of, you know, a couple hundred quilts and, and talk about where they've been and how they've become and why I made them. And, and I think that it's a really fun way to share a sort of horizontal arc of a maker's experience. Yeah. And as far as teaching goes, they can find what you teach on your website. Yeah, there's, so I do uh, both teaching for hire, for example, guilds will hire me and either fly me out or I do a zoom class for the guild. So the guild specific will hire me and we can do a class uh, online and that way all of their members can have access to the live class or the recording, uh, depending on how you kind of do in-person work or, you know, fly me out and I'll do a, a class there. But I also do a series of free and a couple paid classes through uh, my own platform just to kind of get some information out and and share some classes in ways, uh, you know, and like create a community of people who keep coming back to these classes and have projects and we get to talk about them. And it's a really wonderful way to hang out and kind of share work and for me to be able to share some alternative thinking about methods of quilt making. Now, I don't know why I have like a dozen questions here about what is your favorite everything, but I will change this question to, you know, like if someone were to ask me this question, do you have a quilt that has been most memorable for you? I would, I go straight to the corner of my room and I would grab my baby quilt that my great grandmother made for me. So is there a quilt or project or anything that is kind of got a real strong memory behind it that's really meaningful to you? The question of what your favorite quilt is, is a, is a good one for me because it is my goal, my job to make every quilt be better than anything I've ever made. That's my one. That's my that's my sort of testament. That's my mission statement as a maker. And so if I'm doing my job right, my favorite quilt is the whichever one I just made. Yeah. And I'm not always successful. I'm not always making a better version. I often fall slightly short of making the best thing I've ever made. But as a as a mission statement, it is a really good motivator. And so, you know, my favorite is is often one that I have made very recently, if not the last one, uh, but one that would have a good memory. You know, there's, there's sort of telling a fun story. When I was growing up, I had a blanket, right? You've got a blanket. I had a blanket. Mine was called purple because it was purple. And I think somewhere around five or so, my dad decided that I don't need a quilt anymore. I'm big and I'm a boy. Boys don't need quilts. And so he took it and threw it away. Yeah. Do it away forever. And, uh, you know, so, so, so I've definitely been told that, you know, by, by an ex saying like, oh, you know, maybe you've just spent your whole career trying to recreate purple because it was taken from you at such an early age. 
So maybe that's why you like, well, you know, she might be right, might be right. But, you know, so maybe purple or, or maybe some of these early quilts that I made that weren't particularly dynamic are very important because they then pushed me to try to be better. And so there is a sort of weight of wanting to be the best version of myself as a maker and as a artist and as a quilter and as a designer that really makes it special to continue to make quilts. So in your creative practice as a designer, what brings you joy? Seeing something finished. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and like, because so I've tried so many times as a maker, right? So, so artists have these beautiful stop motion videos. They're all the internet stop motion videos, slow motion videos, time-lapse videos of artists making art, sculptors, painters, uh, jello makers, bread bakers. They make all these beautiful time lapses of what they make. And quilting sucks as a time lapse. It looks like a pile of fabric for two months until all of a sudden you get to shake it out and you've made a quilt. So you can see a time lapse of me staring at a sewing machine for two months with a pile of fabric behind it that just grows and changes. And then all of a sudden you get to go, and then you get to see if your idea has manifested into something interesting. And so I think that those moments of um, discovery of being able to see the thing completed are, are fun for me because I don't know until it's done. I have no idea if I'm successful until I'm able to see it completed and you can't see it completed until it's done. I mean, I really, I tell my students a lot, like, you know, if you are part of the way through a project and you decide you don't like it, you are not the authority. (laughs) You're the maker, but you don't know yet. So you better finish it. And the worst case scenario is you don't like it. And then you can A, go back and edit it or B, by golly, you'll know more for later. But anyway, for me, that sort of moment of discovery of my own work is such a a, a wonderful experience that it helps me get through the the drudge of the middle 170 hours of just sewing little squares together. (laughs) Yeah, well, absolutely. There's something to be said for falling in love or even getting addicted to the finish because so many people are stopped cold at the fear of starting or the fear of trying. But when you gravitate to the point where you're in love with the finish so much, it just keeps you going through the drudgery. The That's the same thing as working out. If you yeah. think well, it's going to be cold and miserable when I go outside for a walk, but then you think, oh, I love that feeling of being drenched and just spent. If you fall in love with the finish and that keeps you healthy, I mean, there's something to be said for that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so right now we are going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about Luke's studio space, the quilts, of course, and what's coming soon for Luke. We'll be right back. So Yeah Quilting is Las Vegas's premier quilting and sewing supply retailer. Their goal is to provide the best supplies and customer service. Visit their store in person or shop online at soyaquilting.com. You can also find them on YouTube for tutorials, events, and flash sales to get a glimpse of who they are, what they do, and how much fun they have. For the So Yak Quilting family, it's a privilege to be in an industry filled with wonderful, caring people with a desire to make the world a little better every day. We'd like to welcome you to Rosy Girl Quilting. We are a family-owned online quilt shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our entire family is involved in some aspect of Rosy Girl Quilting, be it packing orders, creating quilt kits and sample quilts, 
wooden quilter tools, or social media posts. Everyone has something fun to do. We bring a wide variety of quilting fabrics with a focus on woven lines. Woven fabrics provide amazing texture, softness, and depth to the quilts you create. Check out our collections from companies such as Diamond Textiles, Peppered Cotton, and Moda. You won't be disappointed. Be sure to browse around the rest of the shop for art gallery fabrics, cotton and steel, tilde, and more. Visit us at rosygirlquilting.com. Use the discount code FIRE15, that's F-I-R-E-1-5, at checkout for 15% discount on your order. We look forward to seeing you. And we are back with Luke Haynes. Luke, can you tell us about your studio space? Where do you create? I have the master bedroom in this house we rent in Los Angeles, which is great. It is it is a small bungalow, but I have the slightly large room, which doesn't fit anywhere near all of my equipment or fabric or tables. <laughs> There's a little garage outbuilding that was built sometime in the probably, I don't know, 1950s. So it's held together with a hope and a dream where the long arm lives. And so I'm I'm sort of able to piecemeal a studio together here, which is great. I, I love having a studio at home so that I can feel really connected to it all the time. But I think it's really important to have a designated space because my studio is messy, but my kitchen and living room are very clean. And so for me, that's a really good value of being able to designate the spaces for particular activities. Yeah. So what is your favorite time of day? Ooh, favorite time of day. I mean, honestly, my least favorite is from like two to five in the afternoon. That's my my least productive, my nap time, you know, my siesta time. But the, the time of day is so dependent on external forces. It's hard to say. For example, my wife is really big into yoga. So I get a morning yoga in when she wakes me up and drags me out. And we go to yoga, you know, three times a week, which is great, three or more. But that's great. You know, I would say my favorite time of day is morning, but it's only if I've gotten enough sleep and, you know, I've woken up on my own and I'm just, you know, sitting around kind of feeling the day, but it's not my favorite when I get a little knock on the noggin and say, okay, put on your spandex. We're going to stretch. It's like, okay. you know. Uh, <laughs> so I think it really is dependent on external forces, right? My morning's the favorite unless I'm being, you know, dragged out of bed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm really excited about getting into the projects. We've already touched on some of the fun collaborations you've done with other, you know, quilters, but tell us about some of your solo projects. So let's start with something you're really well known for your portraits. Let's talk about that. So as I mentioned earlier, portraits was more of a reaction to quilting as a medium coming through the brain of uh, art school and design school. Um, and architecture school. And so, you know, what we think of as art, we think of portraits first, right? Okay, if you if somebody jumped around a corner and said, what is art? You'd be like, oh, oh the Mona Lisa or, or, you know, like the David statue or the Sistine Chapel or whatever. And those are all figural portrait works. And so for me, using quilting as a medium to produce works in the vernacular of what people classify as fine art, I think is really important because it elevates quilting to people who maybe don't have a history of quilting. Yeah. And it allows a viewership to sort of 
project onto it the kind of title of art, <laughs> which I hope, right? And that's great. And But also, I mean, again, for me, because that's what I was used to, and that's what I wanted to learn about, and that's what I wanted to produce. And also, by golly, people liked it. So if someone likes your work, and they like what you're doing, you're not going to stop. And so, you know, I was able to have a great deal of ex exhibits of uh, portrait quilts for a lot of years before people started copying my method, which is what it is, and sort of, you know, come to some acumen from being a person who started putting pictures on quilts earlier than the culture sort of started to pull it in as a, a very normal, normative uh, part of, of quilt making. And by no means was I the first. I'm certain there was quilts in the 1300s that had images on them and woven tapestries have uh, portraits, etc. for, you know, for, from a long time ago. But for me, it was a a way to use the medium of quilting in a similar visual style to that of a lot of the fine art that I had studied over time. Yeah. Well, and tell me about the quilt that has what I believe might be you and your wife on it with a guitar. <laughs> yeah, so that one is a reference to Grant Wood's American Gothic. So we are standing on a quilt or or, or look as though we're standing on a quilt, even though it's all pieced out of fabric uh, in sort of this reference to a posture within fine art. So referencing this sort of Grant Wood American Gothic style and the posture, but made of other people and, you know, in a different scale out of a different medium. Yeah, and it's sort of in the traditional art, would it would it be a pitchfork they're holding? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The pitchfork was in the original, the original painting. Yeah. I want to know a little bit more about the quilt with the strong, powerful black face on it. So it's actually Kanye West and Jay-Z combined. It's the both of them. And it's a quilt called Rags to Riches because it's made out of sheets, jeans, and then suits. And yeah. so it's sort of like you know, transition of material from this like private linen through sort of, you know, your public domestic gene and then all the way up to like suit wool material. And so this kind of rags to riches. And it's the the combination of both of their faces overlapped is right at the time when they came out with an album together. But it was just like a really nice way of presenting them as a, a portrait and also using the material to kind of talk about their story and their history. Yeah. And I want to know about, I mean, obviously I'm scrolling through your website and I'm seeing all this incredible work and you've got famous people, you've got quilts with people on them, you've got quilts that are pieced faces, you, you have log cabins with dancing people on them, you, like you have so many wonderful things, but I want to talk about the one where you are standing in front of it, I believe, with a guitar and it is gigantic. The quilt seems to go floor to ceiling in this gigantic space. So tell us about that one. So one of my projects is to make a self-portrait every year and sort of like to continue my skill. It's an illustration of my skill set and my changing physical body and my location and material, et cetera. And so that one was 30 feet tall, uh, but it's actually made out of three distinct quilts. So there's a quilt for the sort of sort of upper torso. There's a quilt for the middle torso. There's a quilt for the legs. And it was all put on this scaffolding in order to display it in its entirety. So it's actually a you know 30 foot self-portrait made out of my own clothing. Yeah. I, I mean, I could talk about your portrait quilts all day, but I want to move on to talking about, <laughs> we've already talked, touched on the affirmations. My favorite one is you are here. It is beautiful. Thank you. I love that one. That's my favorite one. And I'm not afraid to say it's my favorite. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the log cabins because how many log cabins have you made in your life? 
Oh, but Jiminy, um, so I did a, so I'm coming from design. I'm coming from architecture. I went to architecture school several times. And so I'm now making quilts, right? This is years ago. I'm like, I'm making quilts, but, you know, I don't have a history of quilts in my family that I was gifted through teaching or any sort of nostalgia. And so I want to learn about quilts. I want to honor this history. This, you know, again, maybe, you know, nearly 10 years ago at this point. So I bought a book of quilt patterns online, 5,500 quilt blocks. And I get it. And I'm like, I'm going to learn about quilting. And I'm just flipping through. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this doesn't mean anything to me. You know, what, what, why is it a bow tie? And why is it a basket? And, well, you know, it's all just half square triangles. And who cares? And so I thought, OK, I'm going to go about this in a sort of archetypical way and start at the beginning and work my way towards complexity. And in my research, the log cabin was arguably the first repeatable quilt block unit. It was by no means the first quilt. It was by no means the first quilt pieced fabric, et cetera, et cetera. But it was this sort of like building block, as you were, for this sort of repeatable quilt block unit that you see a lot. And I think so it's sort of like the, the first syndicated quilt block, I guess would be a way to say it. And so for me, I said, okay, let's start there. And I'm going to make a series of quilts using this block so that I can understand it. You know, like a, like if you were a typographer, you're going to go through, you know, the letter R in a hundred different fonts till you understand it. And so for me, I said, okay, let's make it. And so I made 50 90 inch by 90 inch log cabin quilts for this exhibition just to understand the way that the changing of the block will will create a full different aesthetic. Um, and so each of these 50 log cabins was different. They're all the same color and they are all the same size, but all of them are different by changing the blocks themselves. And so for me, that was a way of researching and like developing what I had hoped would be an affinity, but instead has backfired because making too many of them, <laughs> you never want to make another one of them. But so, I mean, how many log cabins have I made? I probably, I mean, probably 60 of them in total over time, 50 for that show and maybe another 10 smattered here and there. And I remember, I think in your trunk show, you showed a picture of it on exhibit. And can you tell us about how you mounted that installation and it was kind of like a walkthrough thing? Yeah, so for this particular show, which is toured and gone to some wonderful museums like the International Quilt Study Center and Museum in Lincoln. My rule is you just can't show them on the wall because they're sculpture. And so for me, when I launched the show, I rented a 40,000 square foot warehouse and hung them from the ceiling in this large curving arc that kind of curved back into itself. It was a, a reference to some sort of 1970s minimalist artist you know, some of these like big monolithic steel sculptures and sort of some of these like other minimal experiences because, you know, I want it to be about the materiality and the sort of environment. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about celebrity next because this was really cool. You made these quilts with celebrities on them, but when you look at them straight on, they look very weird and squished. So tell us about what you were going for there and how, how people can work it out by walking around. Sure. So that was a series I did, completed to, to for this tour of Japan, which was wonderful. And so they're designed in what's called anamorphic perspective. And what that means is there is a, a point where you can see the image, but it is not your 
standard image where you're looking at it from the front. You see it a lot in sort of chalk drawings, but I mean, it's it's historical. I mean, there's a there's a painting from the 1500s where it was a skull kind of done in this this sort of strange directionality. And so the quilt, when you look at it front on, the figure is skewed. But if you walk to the side of it, then the figure starts to kind of come into focus and it looks like how you're looking at it is, is appropriate. And so the idea there is that in order to see the quilt, you actually have to walk around it from multiple vantage points. And that is, for me, a way to prove to an audience that quilts are sculpture. They are yeah. three-dimensional objects. And so in order to see the figure, you have to walk to the side of it. But then if you want to see the quilting or the material or the scale of it or the composition, then you have to walk to the front of it. So it gets to be this like multiple points of access. Yeah, it was such a cool concept. And so how did you choose the celebrities? Why were they meaningful to you? I mean, for two ways. One, in the way that I use the postures from famous art to give an entry point, I just chose very, very accessible celebrities, ones that I want to meet, right? So people who I would love to meet. And, and so therefore, the, the subject was so accessible that you then got to focus almost more on the quilt itself. Right. I mean, a, a quilt of Tom Hanks is like, OK, cool. Tom Hanks, he's great. You know, people used to him as an image, but all of a sudden it's made on a quilt and he's stretched and it's weird. And so like, you know, the, these kind of figures that that you're so used to seeing images of, you can pick it up very easily as a viewer, but you recognize that it's wrong in some way. So you then start to move around it. Yeah. OK, I want to talk about your double wedding ring quilts because you know, it was really delightful for me to see on your website, sort of an exploration of double wedding ring quilts. So, so what was your purpose there? Well, I mean, I think the first purpose is after making, you know, after spending four years making exclusively log cabins, I wanted to make, <laughs> I wanted to try a different block by golly, but also the double wedding ring is arguably the most difficult simple traditional quilt, right? And so the log cabin is almost the easiest. And obviously the easiest is just a big piece of fabric and you quilt it and you're done, but sort of these repeatable block units. And the double wedding ring is on the other side where it's exclusively curves. And so I wanted to kind of hone a skill set while not making log cabins. And also I think that there is such a, a beauty to the pattern, right? So that trifoil pattern, you can see in every culture back through history, the entirety of history, the trifoil, right? And so that sort of becomes this, this double wedding ring. And so it's a, it's an aesthetic that, I mean, we're almost like built in our souls at this point, like as a human, there has been trifoil patternings through every history, through every, you know, community, through every epoch, back through before we can even, you know, find it, right? You find trifoils in, in like communities we discover in rubble, right? And so there's this like beautiful access to this kind of way of overlapping these circles that I think is really wonderfully human, but it's also really cool to undermine a pattern that we expect. For example, I've been making a lot of double wedding rings that are like uh, a lot of monochrome fabric that look really close together. And so it looks like almost a flat quilt. But then when you get up close, you recognize that, say, for example, I made one out of polka dots. And from far away, it just kind of looks like a, a pink quilt with some polka dots. But when you get up close, you realize that there are 700 pieces in this thing that that 
You can only see through these like slight dissonance in the polka dot. And I think that that's a beautiful way to kind of under underplay the work that went into making it. So it looks like a pink environment, but as you get up close, you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of work. And as a viewer, you have to discover it. So I'm inviting you to come closer. And, you know, so like undermining the traditional way of putting double wedding rings together is a really beautiful way to say, you know, let's think about it differently. Let's think about some of these methods differently. And let's say, traditional quilt methodology is beautiful. And like, how do we add to it? How do we bring our own language to it? You know, and so for me, that's literally cutting all the pieces and putting it in a box and shaking them. Yeah. Pulling them from a box, sewing them together. So I don't even know what it's going to look like. It's a discovery for me at the end of it as well. I think quilts have three different vantage points that they need to be interesting to be successful. Far away, middle distance and then close up, right? And the close up is mostly what we spend our time on in quilting, right? The piecing and the quilting. But I think middle distance and far distance also are important. But, but you know, I think that, that some of that close up intimacy is starting to get lost in some of the communities of quilters. You have sort of the, the MQG uh, where it's a lot about these like flat, bold quilts that aren't particularly interesting up close because they want to pull in some of this language of fine art. They want it to be interesting from far away, which is unusual from quilting and, you know, good on them for pushing into that, into that direction. But, you know, in, in my mind, like that doesn't mean you want to undermine some of the qualities that are implicitly interesting to quilting. And so, you know, for me, I get to play with some of that in the double wedding rings as I'm learning and by golly, am I, by, by no means trying to suggest that I'm ultimately successful every time it yeah. is always a challenge and interest and, and lots to learn. And, you know, each of these communities pushing these boundaries is great because the more people pushing a boundary, the, the higher chance that we can figure it out faster as a group and find some really wonderful innovations and visual and spiritual and spatial sort of examples of some of the things we want to create. Yeah. Okay. So talk about pushing your boundaries. Let's talk about closed portraits. How is that different from your other series of portraits? So you can find that on the website also. So this is a series that I made. So I started out as a portrait quilter. I was making pictures of people on blankets. There you go. And I'm just like, gosh, this takes 100 hours. This takes 200. This takes 300 hours. This takes 500 hours. I mean, this is two and a half months of billable time. If I want to be a person who can, you know, have friends and pay my mortgage, like how in the world am I able to do this? Like, why not print it out? Why not be a photographer? Why not just print it on paper and call it good? Stick yeah. it in the Loma. And so the, the the series of clothes quilts was a was an answer to that because these are smaller portraits made out of the clothing people were wearing. So I brought over people and I said, I'm going to take a picture of you and I'm going to get you to leave me what you're wearing. And you know, I told them ahead of time to bring a change. And yeah. so they left me what they were wearing. And I made a portrait out of their own clothing. And so in some ways, there's their own spirit, their own physical, tactile clothing that they they used to present themselves, created their own portrait. And the background is log cabin, all made out of clothing from the city that they're from. So the background is this sort of scrim, monochromatic log cabin 
upon which I put their own clothing. So it's clothing on clothing, but one is kind of community and one is very individual. And so it's about presenting sort of the soul of the person in the object that you cannot get by just making a photograph. Like if I printed it out and sent it somewhere else, there's no spirit to it, but this physical object is made of the literal spirit of the individual. And I think that's really dynamic. Yeah. And I, I love how you use a, a variety of log cabins in different colorways and you show the front and the back of the quilt on your website, which is fascinating to see as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the one the guy standing on the chair? Like, do you take a picture of him in a pose and then use that? And what's on his hands? <laughs> so each of the people for this portrait series, I said, bring a handheld object of importance. And I gave them a folding chair if they wanted to sit or however they wanted to engage with it. And this is a friend of mine who brought uh, Roman candles. That Mm -hmm. was what he brought. That was his object of importance. And then I gave him the folding chair and he's like, well, I'm going to stand on it. So he stood on the the folding chair and then he put the Roman candles in between his knuckles and then held him out sort of like Wolverine. Mm -hmm. So he actually sort of in this Wolverine pose, holding Roman candles, standing on this folding chair. And uh, it's made out of his clothing, uh, which is a Hawaiian shirt and khaki shorts. Yeah, love it. So great. Okay, so the next one I want to touch on is the balloon animals. So what made you launch into that type of series? The balloon animal series is a uh, a joke. (laughs) It's a joke about value, uh, a sort of fiscal value in quilting, right? My job my income is selling quilts. Mm-hmm. I have to prove that quilts are worth money. That's that's my actual job, is emailing people and telling them that's worth money. And there's a, a an artist named Jeff Coons who, who makes 15-foot-tall balloon animals out of steel and sells them for tens of millions of dollars. And one of Jeff Coons's sort of brag claim to fame is that he has literally never made any of his own artwork in the history of of his career, has never made a single thing. And they sell for millions of dollars, tens and tens of thousands, all the way through tens of millions of dollars. And he's never touched a single one. I won't say he's never touched them. He may have, you know, rubbed up against it, but in in, in sort of the manufacturing, he's never done any of the work. And so it it is the literal antithesis of craft object. And so he's known for balloon animals. And so making a series of balloon animals out of a craft material, out of a craft medium that I'm doing all of the work on is this this sort of testament to value, right? So he can sell a balloon animal for tens of millions of dollars and I have to harangue and email and explain and lecture and present work in order to sell them for, you know, a couple 10,000, you know, it's a place where I am in my career. And so there's this sort of joke about the, the implicit value of making a blanket with something that is referencing these very highly sort of valued objects, but made in something that is very low valued culturally. And there's reasons for that. And, I, and I'm not going to say that they're all bad reasons. I think that there's this beautiful nostalgia that we have for quilts that make them, and and like literally the word priceless is the perfect word for this experience because you have a quilt from your grandmother and it is priceless because it is spiritually imbued with your family experience, but you're also going to have a picnic on it and you're going to shove it in your trunk. And so it is like, it is worth less, but it is also priceless. And so it has so much beauty and this, and you never get rid of it, 
but you also would never buy it. And I think that's something that is interestingly implicit in quilting. And so to make a series of work about the joke of how much they can sell for, I thought was very interesting, but they're also very cool, right? It's a 90 inch quilt with a big balloon animal. I worked with a balloon animal artist in Kansas City and uh, took a picture of each of these balloon animals before making the quilt of them. And so we had a balloon animal party and we made balloon animal snacks and all of our friends came over and told the balloon animal artist, hey, can you make this, you know, make a flamingo, make a whatever, and he would make it and then I'd photograph it and then, you know, ultimately chose a few of them to make quilts of. And so it's this kind of joke of the art market, as well as these sort of dynamic, playful, interesting objects that reference sort of childhood and nostalgia and and a lot of the things that are in quilting in some really beautifully like non-apparent ways. Yeah. Well, I want to finish off talking about your quilts by talking about your 10 by 10 by 10 and and some of the public art that you've done. Yeah. So let's start with the 10 by 10 by 10. What does that mean? So 10 by 10 by 10 is a show that I'm currently working on where I've made 10 quilts and I'm going to show them 10 times. But the the third 10 (laughs) is that I am changing them 10 times. So each time I have a new exhibition of these 10 pieces, I'm going to change every one of the quilts. So it becomes this sort of artifact of the exhibition experience. So the first time I've shown them, they're all pretty plain. And then I showed them again after changing them. And I'm about to show them a third time after changing them a third time. So each of the quilts gets changed between each of these exhibitions. So each time they get re-exhibited, they are differently interesting. They're differently executed. And so they become a artifact of 10 experiences and so the quilt itself is a is a sort of history of 10 engagements and 10 exhibitions so it's sort of this like testament to the passing of time it's another narrative about sculpture within quilting and it's also a really fun way for me to create exhibitions that is maybe outside of the gatekeeper world of curators be it museum or gallery which is is you know Uh, a lot of uphill battles for for some of those shows. Sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's terrible and it depends on the curator and the environment and the experience and the institution. But I I kind of wanted to be outside of that for at least this show, for these 10 shows. So I'm curating and producing each of these 10 shows myself. And so like experiencing these 10 objects 10 times in 10 different ways. That's a really great concept. And so if people are listening right now and they're thinking, how can I see these? They're not going to be quite up on your website yet. Where can we find them in the world? Like when you put them out there? How can we well, see? it's a good question. One, join my newsletter and I'll tell you all about it. Two, I guess, you know, so so each of the series, I do have photographs of them because each show is its own individual one. So I guess I can put them up on the website or something, but mostly I'm talking about them on, on my newsletters. And ultimately there'll probably be a book and there'll be a, a series of images of all of these sets of experiences, you know, 10 times 10 times 10. That's a great idea to have a book. I would love to see that. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about with regards to your quilts is public art, because you've had such great conversations on Soft Bulk about 
quilting as sculpture. And when you look on the website and you, you sort of let the scroll happen about the public art, a lot of it is not just a flat hanging quilt. It is sculptural. It's maybe on the ground or on a log or on a person with makeup or you put them out into the world with these photos in such a really cool way. So tell me a little bit about your public art. Well, there's two parts of that. One, I mean, certainly pulling from some architecture, right? And sort of my brain of like presenting quilts as environment, right? Thinking about thinking about quilts as safety objects and, and, you know, what it means to engage with them. And like, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your, your thoughts of it, you can't let everybody touch them, but you want to. So creating a, creating an environment out of them is almost the next best thing because you're creating an experience, uh, a sort of body tactile experience without kind of, you know, touching the object. But it also is a way to reinforce the sculptureness of quilts because they are they are not always hung in a way that a painting might be or a traditional sort of photograph or these kind of capital A arts uh, are presented. And so putting them outside or putting them on scaffolding or hanging them from the ceiling or blocking a doorway with them or putting them in front of a window allows a viewer, user, buyer, engager to have a different set of experience with it than you would a normative kind of gallery experience. And I think that really allows some changing narrative to quilts as objects. And I will say that there is a lot more people on Instagram throwing quilts and unfurling quilts ever since I started doing it a while ago. And it's really a cool way to see a community engage with quilts as sculpture and objects and not be as precious about the piecing and the technique and is and being additionally precious about it being an object and not to say piecing is is something you should ignore and and sort of gloss over because good on you if you've done all that work and mm -hmm. it it's important to show but it's it's also not the only narrative so you can share that and share other parts of it too and i think that's really beautiful and so my work in creating installations and public experiences and putting quilts in sort of non-traditional ways is about sharing that culture with quilters and non-quilters alike. Yeah. And when I was listening to a whole bunch of those soft book episodes, I mean, I've been researching you and Zach and Heidi for the last month, having you guys on the podcast. It really made me think about one thing that I've done in one of my PowerPoints in my trunk show. And I've never been able to photograph my baby quilt flat. It just didn't, it didn't seem right. And every single photo I've ever had in my trunk show on the slides has always been it piled in a bundle or wrapped around my son or something. It's always been, I've just had to put a picture that really resonated with me rather than a flat shot. And that just had never worked for me, but I never thought about why before never, you know, before I saw those soft book episodes or listened to them, I never thought about why I wanted to portray it that way. Okay, so there's one picture in your public art in the scroll. There's these great sort of slideshows on your website, and it looks like it's Banff. So where did you take that picture? It's a snowy scene, and there's this gorgeous lake mountain scene. So oh, I was invited up to Calgary when you know I was able to come and teach a class, and sort of while I was up there, we figured you know I got to got to sort of tour the area, and we took the big long drive up between the beautiful mountains, and of course it started to snow, and you know there's your lake, and you know this I'm trying to kind 
kind of, as you had said, with your experience with taking a photograph of a quilt, but letting that quilt be object, not just figure, right? Not just a flat picture of it, but instead the quilt is is an object, taking it to all of these different places and and either holding it or putting it on a tree, but but like letting it be a part of an experience as opposed to sort of disparate is is part of that task. And so I was able to kind of go up there and sort of in this beautiful, I mean, look, it's beautiful. I'd go tomorrow anytime, you know, and was able to kind of take that quilt up and, you know, put it there and hang it on a moose antler in the lodge and, and sort of have all of these like ways of trying to understand putting it into an environment and, and, you know, does it add to it? Does it take it away, et cetera? Yeah, so cool. Well, I recognized instantly. I was like, that looks like a Canadian scene to me. And it was full of snow. And it was just such a great photo. So be sure to go check that out on the website. Now, I want to ask you, Luke, what is on your design wall right now? What are you working on? Oh, my goodness. I'm actually working on this project that has taken me a year longer than I thought it would. I dyed a bunch of fabric. I mean, I'm probably 600 yards of fabric. And I'm making these series of quilts out of it. So these like very simple kind of grids, but they're all of these different colors. I, I dyed eight different colors of fabric in all of these sheets. So probably, I mean, I don't know how many sheets that would have been, 50 sheets or something, all white sheets, but they take the dye a little bit differently. So there's this kind of modeling of all these different colors, even though there's only eight tones. And then I'm making these kind of, Uh, what I'm calling wiggle quilts out of them. And so it's this really simple method, which is sort of a simple grid and then adding these kind of wiggle shapes to them. And it's this really cool project for me because I didn't know how they were going to come out. And I'm just so pleased watching them uh, sort of come off the sewing machine. And I'm making some smaller ones for sale, which I'm very excited about. I don't normally make smaller objects. I'm making these smaller kind of 18 inch framed quilts that people can kind of buy and own and and hang up because a lot of my quilts are just too big and kind of expensive to share for you know everybody so I'm really excited to be making kind of smaller ones that I can then frame and share and, and and kind of be able to put some of my work into people's houses and that's 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 really fun for me yeah well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you bring to the world in the future so now it's time for the lightning round robin it's okay. a series of rapid fire questions and it's super fun so are you ready I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite tool or notion? A rotary cutter. It saves all the time in the world. Okay. Do you have any kind of personal reward system for getting things done? Yeah. Being able to start the next one. (laughs) That finish. That finish is your reward, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What is a skill you'd love to still learn in quilting? In quilting? Oh, wow. I don't know. Everything is so accessible in quilting. It doesn't feel, I mean, I'm not a perfect quilter by any means. And, you know, Lord only knows what skill sets I can bring to to get better on. But there's, I'm such a dabbler. I mean, I want to learn to draw, but that's not on quilting. You know, maybe maybe a skill set that I would like to learn on quilting would be sort of more of the the digital access to quilting patterns. And so like maybe a digital sort of interface with the long arm that can allow some of my quilting to be super dynamic in a way that I'm sort of having a conversation with the machine versus sort of imposing my will on it. 
Yeah, like the stuff that Joe Cunningham is doing. I, I saw his show at the UK and I was just blown away. And we talked in detail on his podcast about that. But yeah, I love the idea of drawing or creating or having something and then translating that into stitch digitally, whether it's free motion or whether you're computerizing that. It, it yeah. all looks amazing in the end. So that's really cool. Okay. And has there been a mentor who has really influenced you along the way? Well, Joe Cunningham, <laughs> speaking of Joe Cunningham, he and I have been friends for, for quite a long time. And he's such an influence and just a kind human, for sure. Yeah, yeah. When he he sent me his book, and when it came in the mail, I was dancing around the house. My husband's like, who is this person you're interviewing now? I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> I was really excited about it. And I poured through his book, and I tabbed all the pages, and we talked about it. It was really, really fun. Okay, so what are some of your favorite collections of things? Ooh, I have a massive collection of ceramic mugs from some of the best contemporary ceramic makers in the world. It is, oh. yeah, it is, it is fascinating and interesting and expensive, but it is also a beautiful way to collect like the best ceramic makers in the world. I can buy a mug for $500 or under. So it is a beautiful way to collect master artisans works without having to, you know, mortgage the house or whatever. That and bootleg toys. Bootleg toys and contemporary ceramics are my are my collections. What does that mean, bootleg toys? Toys that are not allowed? So they would be one-off toys that are referencing toys or jokes or like, um, you know, like bootleg toy. The term comes from a lot of like Star Wars toys. Oh. Star Wars toys were kind of the famous one. And then there's this whole community of people who made fake bootleg Star Wars toys. So like they're pink. Or they're, uh, you know, they have some like little switch that makes them different, but they're illegal because they're referencing these things. And so there's a whole community of bootleg toy makers who make these kind of one-off art objects that are referencing sort of toy or toy culture. Oh, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. Okay. So do you have another favorite hobby besides quilting? Ooh, that shifts. I would. I did ceramics for some years, but I don't have the infrastructure right now to do it. So I have ceramic studio in the garage, which is exclusively in boxes. <laughs> but ceramics, probably, you know, I bake a lot of bread. So, you know, I cook a lot. So probably somewhere between sort of ceramics or, or sourdough bread or something like that. Yeah. I need to ask a follow-up question for the ceramic mugs that you collect. So are they a collection that you use and you're able to drink out of, or are they on display somewhere special in your home? So they're on display in the home in these sort of shelves around the, the main living space. And the only reason that they're not usable right now is because I you put museum putty to hold them on the shelf because we live in California. I don't want any earthquakes to shatter them. So they are usable and I love them to be. But in this current home that we're living in for at least a little while longer, they have been puttied to the shelf for safety, even though I'm a little sad about that because I like them to be used because it's it's part of this beautiful narrative of of like accessing the the art itself right one of the things i love about quilts is put it on the bed and yeah. then all of a sudden it's sort of a real object you know like the velveteen rabbit or something yeah yeah okay and you referenced this earlier in the podcast just briefly but do you have any furry friends in your studio oh i do i've got honeydew who is a 150 pound irish wolfhound uh, who is sleeping currently on the couch. And she, you know, she sometimes visits the studio, but her body gets in the way. She's big girl. So if she if she visits, I have to sort of take a running leap to get over to the other side. <laughs> Sweet. 
Okay, well, thank you for braving the lightning round, Robin. That was fun. So I have mentioned your website at luke.art, where we can find everything that you bring to the world and everything we're talking about. But where's the best place for quilters to connect with you on social media? Uh, Probably Instagram. It's the one that I'm on the most often. So that's at Entropies. Or you could just search my name, Luke Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S, and then you'll, you'll see it and it'll pop up. And yeah. Now, as we wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away most from our conversation today? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, inspiration, right? I I want everyone to sort of, if you have to pause the podcast to go run and start a project, you know, I mean, that's like, you know, I I want people to make what's in their heart and and sort of put it into the world. And, and, you know, any way that I can encourage that I'm, I'm elated. So, you know, feel free to reach out if you've got questions or problems or concerns or excitements and, you know, reach me any way you want to, you know, what I want you to take away is, is sort of a drive for yourself. Such a great way to end the podcast. Luke, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that was my show with Luke Haynes. I was delighted to have a conversation about quilts as sculptural objects that can be displayed in galleries, but also in your own backyard. My favorite thing that he has done recently is to bring messages to strangers viewing his quilts in the world on display with messages like, keep going, keep loving, and no one belongs here more than you. I love that. If his story really resonates with you and you're thinking, I need to connect with this community, be sure to check out Luke Haynes on Patreon. Also connect with him if you want to commission a custom affirmation quilt. This is a creator I will be excited to watch in the future, and I can't wait to see what he does next. And I loved sharing his story with you. And don't forget, I launched all new weekly videos on YouTube back in October. So go check out Quilter on Fire on YouTube. There are tips, tricks, tutorials, and artist interviews from big shows like IQF in Houston. These creators are amazing. So subscribe today so you don't miss a thing. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.